1: Rich Omis Episode one hundred and twenty two Hey Richers, this is Hayut, and I'm thrilled to be here with you today. My guest today is a very special lady and one of the most exciting and inspiring guests that I have interviewed to this show. However, she thinks she is not an entrepreneur. I think she is And you will have to decide. Smita Nair Jain has, indeed, a very senior position in one of the largest U.S. retailers. However, she also has hundreds of thousands of followers on social networks, and I think she is making a tremendous impact on our world. So is she an entrepreneur, although her 9 to 5 is as an employee? Smita Nair Jain is a growth-focused CXO with extensive global exposure and an established track record. A business leader at heart who is passionate about building profitable businesses, acquiring, growing, and retaining valuable clients and client relationships customers' experience, nurturing people and talent, continuously challenging status quo, and stewardship around carving things to a better shape than it was found in. Recognized for leading and motivating multicultural teams of more than 4,500 colleagues across India, Australia, Asia, North America, UK, and continental Europe, comprising operating and technology staff, subject matter experts, and mature leaders with responsibilities around business development, delivery, and profitability. Smita is a globally recognized keynote speaker and futurist. Smita Jen, I'm so excited to have you here today. Hi. Hi, Hayut. How
0: are you today?
1: I'm wonderful, and... You know, we had a little chat before we scheduled this interview, and I'm so excited about this interview. I just shared with my listeners what you've done until now, and I would like to ask you to share with us what are you doing and most passionate about today, and
0: where are you heading? Yeah, so my name is Smita Nair Jain. Um, You know, first of all, thank you so much, Hayut, for reaching out to me and giving me an opportunity on this platform. Mm -hmm. I've heard some of your other uh, interviews, and they're fascinating. And, you know, I feel completely flattered to be included on this platform where you have people like Guy Kawasaki actually speaking. So I'm flattered as well that you
1: are here. So, thank you so much.
0: Well, I'm currently uh, the Senior Divisional Vice President at the Sears Offshore Center in India. Uh, Sears, as you know, is a 141-year-old uh, retail organization, so that's what I do. I'm based in a place called Hyderabad, which is towards the south of uh, of India. So that's where I'm based. Now here, I'm not a spokesperson of Sears. So most of my observations that I will be sharing with you will be generic and will not be reflective of uh, my employment with Sears or of Sears as an organization. Um, what I'm passionate today about is... Uh, are a few topics really? One is uh, I love the social media. You know, I'm I'm always there whether it's uh, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I mean, I just think that uh, you know, I'm I'm much older than the age of social media, really. But you know, I think I'm, I'm completely hooked <laughs> onto you're it. Not, no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely hooked onto it, and I and I think that uh, you know, if properly used, the social media only benefits. Uh, human uh, human uh, kind you know so that's one thing that I'm passionate yeah. about and I think that reflects in the way uh, people on social media have also uh, you know reacted to me so I've got an impressive number of followers on all my uh, uh, platforms yes, I'm deeply grateful to all of them the second piece that I'm I'm really passionate about is about uh, inclusion and diversity okay you know, I'm part of many uh, organisations in India, like uh, Lean In, etc., who who uh, really are uh, working in areas on gender equality at the workplace. Um, you know, in fact, shortly next month, I'm also really it's not next month, it's this month. I'm I'm also going to the U.S. to be part of one of the Lean in Group uh, meetings there. Uh, so inclusion and diversity, especially gender diversity, is something that I'm I'm really passionate about because I think that globally we have a long way to go to bring uh, equal pay for genders and equal representation of genders right up to board level, et cetera. We have a long way to go.
1: Um, How do you find India in compare to the global situation?
0: So in India... Um, it's, it's a very encouraging snapshot that we see in India. So, for example, we see a leading number of uh, women being part of STEM education, which is science, technology, electronics, and maths. Yeah. If you go to any of the technology organizations in India, you, know, you will find up to 40% diversity of women at starting levels and up till uh, probably junior management. Okay. But I think the, the challenge is that as we go upwards you know, that number keeps dwindling. Sure. But of course, in India, we have a number of ladies who were CEOs of uh, leading banks in India, leading uh, uh, technology institutions in India and so on. So it's an inc- it's an encouraging story, but I think a lot still requires to be done, uh, Hayu.
1: And, uh, and the third uh, thing you're passionate about,
0: what is the third thing? Uh, the third thing is about mentoring so by mentoring i mean i mentor a few high potential uh, middle management women who want to who are seeking to grow to executive levels of leadership and i also mentor a few startups where i deal with these youngsters who are starting organizations in terms of helping them find funding as well as helping them find uh, you know their first batch of of customers mm. so um, So this is fabulous. It is. um, I think it's all about dealing with the youth of today. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm heading, where, uh, you know, I want greater engagement with the youth of today and with the startup world. So, you know, all my efforts are uh, in, in moving towards that area in a very non-revenue-generated way. So I don't do it for business, but I do it for passion.
1: It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it it is exactly what we talked about, which I must share with my listeners that you asked to talk before and you said, listen, Hayut, I'm only wrote it to me as well. I am not an entrepreneur in terms that I have another work in a very well-established organization. I don't have my own company. However, you are actually influencing so many people and you are so active in social media and uh, you know you have your TEDx and you have the things that you are writing and so you are an influencer and I totally see you as an entrepreneur, although you're nine to five as uh, the way people are saying it although I'm sure a small job is among another a very well established organization and I think it's a very important issue to talk about. But this time with you, I want to talk about all those things that you are so passionate about and you are influencing others because that's what I saw and that's what I loved so much about looking and hearing and reading everything that you are doing.
0: Thank you, Hayut. Your observations make me feel prouder of myself. So it's flattering me. Thank you very much, Hayut, for your kindness.
1: With so many followers all over, if you still need my My words, to feel proud of yourself. It's very cute. Um, Is there any fourth thing you're passionate about? Or we are with the social media, with the issue of influencing and gender, mainly on gender issues and the mentoring ladies on the one hand and startups and entrepreneurs. On the other, is there any first thing you're passionate about? Yes,
0: I think I mentioned it, but I'll repeat it. And that is about engaging with the youth. So I do a lot of campus uh, speech circuits where I speak to students in leading uh, engineering and undergraduate and management institutes in India and, uh, you know, try to motivate them and uh, and speak to them about the challenges of the workforce, of being part of the workforce and so on. So. I never spare an uh, opportunity to actually engage with the youth of today. But currently, it's only restricted to India because that's my sphere of influence at this point in time in a physical uh, sense.
1: Hmm. And um, tell me in a few words what you have been to, because I don't want to ask you about your career. Tell me also a few sentences about your career, but also about your, what I call entrepreneurship or all you're doing in terms of influencing others, because you've done this for years, I guess. Tell me about both things and perhaps about other things in your life, but give us some points towards the years of your development, both in your career and what you are influencing and involved with.
0: Sure. So in terms of my career, uh, you know, I have about 25 years of work experience, which started uh, after I finished my uh, MBA from one of the Indian universities. Um, And uh, I've, you know, in these 25 years... Um, I've occupied various uh, national and global levels of leadership in organizations that are uh, that are all international names. So I've very seldom worked with, uh, I don't think I've ever worked really with an Indian organization by itself. It's all been with uh, international or global organizations at leadership levels. Um, and I think one of the pieces that really influenced me to, um, you know, work and give back to society and, you know, deal with these youngsters and show them, try to show them, uh, you know, paths for their future and so on, is because of the encouragement that I got from my background, which includes my parents, my sibling, uh, you know, my teachers, the leaders who I worked for, you know, they've been fabulous and always supporting and always encouraging. They've been kind to a fault um, and, you know, have had the faith. Uh, in me to take big risks for their businesses. So, you know, nobody can really develop without a supporting infrastructure of people around them. And because I have had that, sure. um, you know, that's how I, uh, because I've had that, I just think that the least I can do is probably be that for, uh, you know, the younger lot of people.
1: Smita, did you have it uh, from a young age as well? Did you feel it from, from your first steps
0: in this world? oh uh, oh absolutely i did because uh, i think i you know one of the activities in my professional life that i take very seriously is really nurturing talent within the team and uh, you know this can be done with an entrepreneurial bent of mind as well as with a managerial bent of mind i mean i just think that uh, you know if you've got a great team working with you the way you can reward them back is by making them greater in terms of investing in their sure. talent, nurturing their uh, skills, um, you know, taking risks with them, saying, you know, you go ahead, take that risk, and I'm here to protect you from behind. So I think, uh, yes, I've been passionate about it from my first, uh, uh, from my first job where I was, uh, you know, a manager of customer services. So, yes, I was passionate about it.
1: And as a kid, did you feel uh, confidence? Did you feel there is a future ahead of you or was it more complicated? No, you know,
0: I I think I was unrealistically ambitious for myself. (laughs) So I always thought that, you know... uh, you know, I've, I've had so many barriers in my life, but, you know, I've, uh, with the help of the people around me, I've always been successful in kind of breaking that and moving ahead. And wow, uh, yeah, so I think I was just, uh, um, I, you know, really super ambitious for myself. I, d- I don't think I've reached that level where I was ambitious uh, to reach. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, but there's still time. But yeah, I was always ambitious. <laughs> wow. You
1: know, we are about entrepreneurship and you talked a bit, you just started to talk about your entrepreneurship and the thing that you're doing really to influence people and I think to make this world better and how you also use your work to empower and encourage the young people that are around you. And I love that so much because I saw in most of my life, um, I was working in international organizations like you in the marketing part of them in senior positions. And what we found out, and I guess you found it out as well, that as much as you empower and let the young people in your team just grow and do new things and get better, you are earning, right? You are, you are becoming more and more successful because they are part of your team. They are doing great things. You are there to mentor them. And together you can just conclude the world, isn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it gives great pleasure to see that, you know, some of the people that you, almost recruited from the starter level, you know, they've probably reached up to your level in such a short span of time because, uh, you know, they are they are smart. And sure. one thing that I've always had is I have always hired people smarter than me to be in my team because that makes my life easier.
1: <laughs> I love when people are saying that and I trust you that that's what you did. I want to ask you, what would be
0: the best advice you can give any entrepreneur so um, I think, you know, so I was just saying that uh, I speak, uh, you know, to a lot of youngsters in these leading uh, colleges and universities in India. And, uh, you know, a large cross-section of them, when I when I ask them, what is it that you want to do? A large cross-section of them tell me that, you know, they want to build a startup and they want to start their own uh, organization. And I'm really happy to hear that because it shows a certain free mindset sure. and a mindset to uh, not be a part of the employment scene in India, you know. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited when I hear this. And I ask them, so what is your idea? Because obviously for a startup, there requires to be an idea. Yeah. And uh, so when I ask them that, I'm very disappointed because many of them say they don't have an idea or they give me a very, very skeletal ske- sketch of an idea. Yeah. But all I can see is in their eyeballs, Uh, Hayut, I don't know whether you or your uh, listeners um, have read these Richie Rich comics, okay? These are comics about a very, very rich boy and his family. In the cartoons, they show dollar signs in the eyeballs of this boy and his staff and all that.
1: I don't know the cartoon, and we are going to put it because I'm looking for good cartoons since I, I found out about Dilbert. Are you familiar with Dilbert. But when you're talking about the eyeballs with the dollar sign, I know exactly what you're talking. I even know what you mean, but I want you to say that because I'm talking about it all the time. And I think people are fed up of hearing
0: me saying that. So
1: this is your turn.
0: (laughs) So, you know, uh, you, you see these dollar signs shining through their eyeballs and you know that they're not bothered about value creation. They're only bothered about valuation.
1: So true. You know? so
0: so true. So they just want to build a startup, take it to some level of maturity, and then sell it up in the open market, become a, a multi-millionaire or a dollar millionaire, and then probably, you know go on to their next startup. you know uh, It's kind of an unsustainable model that I see, because I believe that people who are passionate about having their own startups, need to first focus on what is called value creation. Yeah. So what is the value statement of your startup? I think that's the first thing that, you know, I would tell to people who want to actually start with, you know, a startup. I love it so much. The second point is about define that value. After all, when you're having a startup, unless it is a, it is a charitable startup or a social welfare startup, you know, your ultimate aim is to make money. And you must remember that the money that you want is lying in the pockets of that man you want to buy your product or service in.
1: This is my sentence. I say it all the time.
0: The money that they are looking for in in the pocket of your
1: customer, listen to them. (laughs) You know,
0: and, and what is it, what is the value that you are giving that person so that you get that money from that person and you keep on getting that money from the person? Because after all, your startup is going to be successful not only with revenue, but with recurring revenue. Of course. And the third bit that I want to actually tell them at this point is please never focus on profit or on revenue. Mm-hmm. You know, first look at value. First look at see which is the need of the customer that you are trying to satisfy, whether the customer knows that need or is ignorant of that need. What is the solution that you are taking to the customer? Build the customer base, build customer service, build customer experience and revenue and profit will therefore follow. Will come. And my last point on this, Hayut, is that, you know, um, service will fail. Whatever your product or service is, by the nature of it, you know, something will always go wrong. Mm. The point is, if there is a service failure, as a startup, you must always know how to recover that service failure. And if there is a service recovery that happens to a customer which satisfies the customer, you know, he or she will be a lifelong customer to you. So I just think the focus is on customer, the focus is on value creation, and then you go around building your startup. I think that would be my advice. Wow.
1: I love that advice so much, because actually, and I just want to say together, you first talked about having an idea and having an idea of bringing more value to the world. And the second was on focusing on the customer's that you are bringing this value to, and build your startup around them and their needs. And the third one is take care of anything that goes wrong and even make better everything that might get better, and the money will come from there. I think we can't take the, the dollar signs out of their eyeballs. And the reason we can't do that, it's not only because they are bad people that don't care about value, but care only about money. It is because it's so difficult today, and so challenging today, to make a living and to live the life that you want to. And what you are telling them, and we are saying that in different voices, but I'm sharing exactly what you believe in on this issue is: focus on the value, the customer, and how to make it better, and the money will come
0: with absolutely. that. Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. Hayut.
1: Now I want to ask you, you are very successful, you are very successful, and the reason I know that is, first of all, because all the great positions that you earned and you served in, and you are still serving in, and second, about all the followers and the people that are listening to you and asking you and following you, so you are very successful, and we'll talk about it in a minute, because I want to know what you see as a success, but however, I'm sure, like all of us, you also had failures, and I want to ask you to share with us your biggest, most critical failure with customers—that one that affected your entrepreneurial journey or your journey in life, in the business life, in your professional life, the, the most or almost the most.
0: So you know, like I said earlier, Hayut, I can't talk about uh, because I'm not an entrepreneur. The stories that I have are not mine alone, and therefore I, I cannot share it with them. But you know, from the key learnings uh, that I've taken, I think one of the biggest reasons why customer failures happen is because we assume that we can continuously make money from the customer for the same product or the same service, which means that we are not continuously improving, we are not continuously innovating, And therefore, I think that's the quickest way to actually fail a customer. Because uh, sometimes we believe that, you know, as uh, an entrepreneur or as a business owner or as a corporate executive of a large organization, we believe that we understand our customer base completely. We believe that our surveys tell us 100% of the truth and nothing but the truth. And therefore, we believe that we can lead Um, the customer to believe in our product and nothing else. Now these are all pure misnomers Mm -hmm. and therefore I think a lack of focus on innovation is the biggest reason for customer failure and therefore organization failures to a very large extent. Like I said, continuous improvement and innovation, you know, if change is inevitable, innovation is inevitable. And if we are not going to focus on that, or if we are going to be blind to the changing trends in the world, it will be to our own detriment. So let me look at the first example that I had in my mind, and that is Kodak. Okay, great. I'm, I'm very passionate about this example because uh, my husband is a cinematographer, oh. and uh, you know, he is what is called a director of photography, or basically a cinematographer, okay. where they shoot uh, movies. He shoots movies, but he, he's into more shooting of advertising. Ah, oh, wow. I love that. Uh, so, you know, this, this has happened to him. And uh, this is the case study of Kodak, for example. Yes. So, you know, we all know Kodak is a technolo- was a technology company. It dominated the photographic uh, film market during most of the 20th century and so on. But it blew its chance to lead the digital photography revolution as they were completely in denial for too long. It was one of their engineers, a gentleman called Steve Sassoon, who in 1975 built the first filmless photography. Oh! But the leaders, and when he took it to the leaders in Kodak, they said, oh, this is really cute. This is Steve Sassoon's own words in that case mm-hmm. study that I read, where he says, oh. the leaders said, oh, Steve, it's too cute, but don't tell anyone about it. So in 1975, when Steve Sassoon developed a camera, which didn't require a film, basically it was a digital camera, the leaders in the organization just didn't recognize you know, the importance of the invention. And they said, just don't tell anyone anything, because they said that if we come out with digital cameras, our biggest um, source of profitability, which is the film world, will not accept filmless cameras. Wow. Okay. I mean, that was such a big mistake that they made it was because for the last almost 15 to 20 years, it's only digital cameras that are working in the film world. And, you know, people like my husband sometimes don't like that development because uh, they, they believe that with digital camera, now anybody can become a, ca- a cinematographer. It's simplified the process so much for people. And, you know, the, there's so much of savings in the world of production because you, you don't have wasted film because of so, extra shooting and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, Kodak is a great example. They just missed the bus despite owning the invention. And uh, they filed for bankruptcy, I think, in uh, somewhere in uh, 2011 or 2012, you know. And, you know, I, I think the startups should not think that, oh, we're too small and this cannot happen with us. I think the way startups should look at is, if this can happen to the Kodaks and the Nokias and the IBMs uh, and the blockbusters of the world, it can definitely happen to you.
1: Definitely.
0: The same thing happened with Nokia, for example. You know, They were the first in the world to build a cellular network, but they never recognized that with the, the start of the internet, they never recognized that data will become more important than voice. And they completely lost out, you know? You know, I was in Nokia.
1: I was a marketing director, a VP of marketing in oh. Nokia in Israel and part of the international marketing group just before 2007, between 2004 and 2007. And it was so interesting to see because Nokia started to lose its market share on 2003, and they stopped everything. And they made a huge research among 60,000 people around 21 countries one and a half hours interview with each and they changed everything and they brought the smartphones and they took ownership of being a smartphone and they led the smartphone market and of course the mobile market in 2005 they had 40 percent market share of the mobile market in the world they were huge then they were giants then and then everything went wrong and you are so right with that because it was the data they looked at the data but I think they were too um they were very arrogant it's not the only reason that uh, they failed they failed because of the Symbian which is an operating system however they knew that it is going to be about data but they were sure that because they are such genius in mobile phones People will act with data the way they're acting with phones. And they didn't realize that people have been acting with data and with computers for so many years, and they're so successful for that. So they can't change people's habits from Internet to phone to cellular. They have to merge between them and to take a lot of habits from their Internet to the cellular and not the vice versa. Yeah, and that's what Steve Jobs did afterwards. So I, I, I love this example.
0: So, you know, I just just my last two bits on this point of, uh, you know, the failure. So when I look at my own stories of failures, I think it's it's because we we have chosen not to change either because we are frightened of that transformation or worse. We think that the customer does not require this. So the mistake that we make is making a decision for the customer because, uh, you know, customers always lap up what is more convenient, Mm -hmm. less costly and, you know, so on and so forth. The third bit is the reason for failure has been not being aware of what is happening in the world. When we are all too consumed with our own business, with our own organization, with the success of our own service and product, we are unaware of what competition is doing. We don't keep abreast of technological advances or market advances or customer demands. And, uh, you know, we are not ready for that change. And I think... Those were the reasons. I just cited these two, three examples, but largely these examples are very similar to my personal examples where because of a refusal to change, uh, you know, faced customer failures and organizational failures as well.
1: I love it. And now I would like to ask you to share with us your biggest, and I wish it would be yours, but you can choose whatever you want, the biggest uh, story of the greatest, most significant success as a result of the right customer focus or something that you or somebody that you want to talk about did right about approaching their customers?
0: Okay, so this is like a, a little bit of a mixed story, Hayut. It can be considered as a success, a success out of a failure or a failure out of success, okay? It's
1: even better than just a success story.
0: <laughs> right. So after this, then you should not ask me what was your biggest failure because it's <laughs> a mixture of both, okay? <laughs> so um, i think you know all this while i was speaking about creating value for the business and let us not look at profitability and let us look at uh, um, you know building a customer base building service rec- uh, service uh, uh, you know customer experience and then revenue and profitability will follow and so on and so forth but i think if we know the cost of customer acquisition and if we know the cost of other great words like customer retention yeah. and customer attrition then we know that You know, retaining a customer is far, far more effective than attracting a new customer. But I think one of my, you know, success stories has been that when I was working for uh, this very, very large American organization, one of the things I realized, because this was part of my portfolio, sure. was that, you know, one of our relationships, one of our client relationships, it was an institutional client, so it was not personal consumers, but it was an institutional client. And, uh, you know, I somehow realized that on many factors, um, this relationship was not working out for my organization. So things like uh, on the parameter of regulatory compliance, this, this organization was not doing too well, as in the client organization was not doing too well in terms of how the value creation that we had defined for them was going. Hmm. It had reached its peak and we couldn't do anything much further for that. The, the The client relationship was turning to be, it was still generating revenue, but it was not turning to be as profitable as it used to be and so on. So in this overall uh, search for value creation, I had this idea that maybe we should part ways with this client. Now, obviously, you know, all organizations are always chasing customers to make them, to get them onboarded as a client for the organization. There are no stakeholders who are willing to listen to why we must plan the exit of a customer relationship. Hmm. But I think I went around and I collected all the evidence to show how this this relationship was now beginning to look non-value creative, to the client organization as well as my own organization yeah and you know it required a lot of hard work in terms of getting all the stakeholders together within the organization building a coalition of thought amongst all of them and saying that and, and allowing them to see from all sides of the picture that what I was saying was was right and you know Seniors are not, uh, you know, open to the fact that we can't do anything more for a particular client. You know, very few people realize that there is a plateauing effect for all relationships. And, you know, unless there is a a new paradigm that you can define for them, there's very little that can be done. And it comes back to what you said about Kodak, exactly. Uh, Yeah, absolutely this process took about almost 8 months for wow. me to take it from desk to desk of all our senior stakeholders and convince them about this and finally i got a nod from about 80% of the seniors who said that you know i think we you're making sense so how are you going to go about it but i think the real reason why i was acknowledged for this uh, customer separation was the way i dealt with it in the sense that Um, You know, we always have a project plan in terms of how we are going to onboard a client, but we never look at when we are going to offboard a client. (laughs) But I had a complete project plan that was uh, that was defined with, uh, uh, you know, responsibilities and accountabilities for all key players in that project plan. There was a detailed client communication plan that was part of that project plan, wherein we we had multiple levels of uh, discussions with the client because the client organization was also a very well known name a very large player in its own industry we helped we helped the client in terms of identifying another supplier in our place wow. we also promised that till the last day of our servicing relationship we would be servicing them with equal amount of passion and finally at the end of almost 19 months uh, we ended that relationship. Wow. But it ended in a very, very positive note. Certainly, I think I protected the financial and reputational P&L of the organization. Wow. Uh, and we supported the client organization in such a way that it was the most noiseless, seamless exit of the time. So I just think that in that passion for value creation, sometimes you have to also end relationships. Wow. And uh, that is also value-creating not only for your own organization, but for the customer themselves. So I think this was one of my biggest success stories. All that I want to tell your listeners is that there are always two sides to the same coin.
1: Wow, what a story. What a brave, encouraging, inspiring story. Because I thought in a minute you will tell us how you made the new revenue of other parts of this customer and you actually was brave enough to take the whole organization to let this customer off. But make the profit the right way until it will happen and keep the name and the reputation of the company. It is really a wonderful story, perhaps one of the best stories of successes. Thank you for sharing that. And now I want to ask you for a recommendation of the best and most effective technological or digital tool, however I'm not interested in the last, shiniest tool in the endless list that perhaps nobody will use. I want something that really works for you and helps you to succeed and can help other entrepreneurs as well.
0: Hayyut, I don't think that there is a magical tool out there that's going to help us, you know, conquer all our barriers and achieve all our results for us. But I think there is a combination of... Uh, things that we can do to um, you know help us become better in servicing our clients or getting new clients and improving our um, you know, uh, cost-profit ratio and so on. So I think every organization needs to focus on building these things over a short period of time. One of the things that I absolutely swear about, especially for startups or organizations in the financial services or banking space, is the absolute requirement of a robust CRM software because oh. you need to know what the group of customers in one family's relationship with your organization is. Because, you know, there there are many banks whose savings account does not speak to their credit card account for the same customer and so on and so forth. Because Mm. as far as the bank is concerned, the credit card organization is different from their savings bank organization. (laughs) That's all great for the organization. But for me as a customer, I'm frustrated. Similarly, uh, my husband and I have an account with the same bank, but the bank does not recognize our family relationship with the bank. Okay. So, I mean, these, these are all very Shoot. frustrating points. And therefore, I think a lot of banks and financial institutions are moving in the right direction. But I think even startups, which have a financial product or service, they should look at the family as a unit or the organization as a unit, in whichever case is their client, you know, well, if the family is a client, then they should know the entire family relationship. If an organization is their client, then they should know the entire organization's relationship with their organization. So, i think a, a, a robust crm software is absolutely essential i don't want to play out any any brands because every brand has its own no uh, successes uh, has its own pros and cons sure the second bit is i think you know websites you know i've seen a lot of startups doing quite well they've got the weakest websites um where uh, it's either very slow or it's not very uh, user friendly so you know these websites are really Good, where customers can be asked to answer their own questions or seek answers from others. Um, The third is in terms of um, some level of uh, robotics or automation to ensure that uh, we use email as a way to improve customer service and uh, uh, more quickly respond to uh, needs or help requests from customers. Um, Communications. Now, a lot of people, because we are in the age of social media, We have abandoned traditional methods of actually reaching out to customers. I don't think that this is technologically driven, but I think that we need a technology, um, we we need some kind of a platform to see which is the best way to deal with the customer. The use of the telephone still cannot be ruled out. Hmm. And sometimes some levels of, some types of customers still prefer a personal touch. We need our startups to use these kind of softwares that are available in the market, that we need those softwares to actually identify. Um, you know, what is the best way of actually dealing with customers. There are lots of other tools for things like data management and analytics.
1: No, I love that. I love that because my interviewee, when I talked with Reza Goodwin, who is from Trinidad, she's this fantastic lady. And she said my, and she's very technological and everything. And she said that my best technological tool is the phone because of her specific field that she's dealing with. And I think, and, and Chris Brogan has said it most beautifully. He said, you should connect with your customers the way your customers want to be connected. And that's what you're saying. You should find how the customers want to be connected and what they use or they need and then connect with them this way. Absolutely. Do you have another tool that you wanted to talk
0: about? No, I, a few minor ones, no no particular tools, but, you know, a lot of tools are available for data management and analytics because I think that sure. we, we collect a lot of data, but we don't do anything with it. If we look at the stories behind those data, data points, it will tell us a lot in terms of what we need to do. There is also marketing automation available, self-service optimization available. So these are various tools that are available in the market and based on the financial power of the startup at, at any point in time. They should look at actually investing in in some of them.
1: Sure. And also, you know, I talked with Christopher Penn, Chris Penn. He is all about data analytics and big data. And when I asked him for his recommendation, he said, just use analytics, Google Analytics. Just look at what they are giving you because there are so many, especially startups, they are so anxious to take so many data and to find so many things, but nobody is looking at that absolutely. What does it say so I love it so much and now, I would like to ask, you know there are so many factors that actually affect our success, whether in you know in our career or in our influence in life or anywhere in that direction. but I believe that each of us has one Factor that really affected their success, and I want to ask you what is your one key success factor? What helped you to succeed?
0: Um, I think it would be very unfair if I just say one factor. (laughs) I think there are two main factors and one uh, smaller factor. Okay, so okay, go for that. I'm going to cheat here and give you three answers. (laughs) Go for that. You've done it the whole interview. You go for that. You can continue doing that. It's, it's really great.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: So, you know, I call it my 2PA. Okay. You know, P the letter. So 2PA, that's my, you know, success factors. Uh, one P is, of course, uh, the passion for value creation, hmm. which I cannot underestimate at any point in time. The second is the people with me. Hmm. This includes bosses, subordinates, peers, even my domestic help at home, you know, mm-hmm. these are all people who have fueled, given me extra time, given me, you know, has be, have been kind to a fault, supported me, humored me at times when I had a horrible idea to actually present. Mm-hmm. So that's the second P, which is people who, who have been with me. And the third, which is a lesser factor, but equally important is never be ashamed. So it's asking for help. Okay. I love that. Uh, I, I just think that, you know, many times we think that there are professional jealousies at peer levels. Yeah. But, you know, every time I have gone and I have disarmed myself in front of this very competitive peer of mine, and I've said, hey, you know what, I'm having a problem and only you can help me solve this. It's very human. You know, people suddenly feel very proud that, sure. you know, they have their own skills and therefore they give everything to help you out. Because suddenly they realize that you're not playing an ego game with them. You've just completely accepted defeat, gone to them and said, I can't solve it. Can you help me solve this? How did you solve it in the past? Please tell me the solution. And I would be happy to just copy and paste it. Wow. So I just think that every time I have faced a problem, which which I think my passion for value creation and my, and my people have not been able to, uh, my, my team has not been able to help me with, I've just gone out. gone to the smartest person who i thought was my toughest competitor and just gone and asked for help and 100 percent of the times they've always helped wow you know i i just believe in these in the goodness of the human nature when you actually go and tell them i accept defeat please help me there are very few people who will not help you
1: i i love that so much and now we came to my last question and my last question As you know, and my listeners know, is my mountain question. And since I've been imagining this journey of marketing and of building the awareness and the trust and the idea of how a new product or a brand meets um, the customer's need, I think of that as climbing a mountain, step after step after step. And then when we get to any or any peak, we should climb another mountain. I started to ask my guests whether they ever climbed a mountain or wish to climb a mountain or have any good metaphor about climbing mountains or any relationships with mountains at all. And that's what I'm asking you.
0: Actually, that's a fabulous question. And here comes my real story, (laughs) because this is not an organizational-driven story. This is my personal view. Whoa. You know, so Hayuth, uh, you know, you have only seen my bust size uh, photograph, okay? (laughs) You've not seen me fully. I'm completely unfit. (laughs) I'm significantly overweight. And therefore, I don't do anything that defies gravity. (laughs) There is no way that I would be caught, you know, mountaineering, Yesterday, today, or tomorrow. Oh. So here's my story about. But I love this question about you know mountaineering, and you know I'm going to answer it metaphorically because I don't I don't dream of climbing any mountains. <laughs> but metaphorically, I'll share the story of mine. As I shared with you earlier, my husband is a cinematographer. Yeah. And about five years back, or six years back, maybe he uh, he shot a movie called Maji, the Mountain Man. Oh. So it's the story of this man called Maji. He's an Indian belonging to a very, very underdeveloped part of India. It's a village. It's a rural area. Um, and it, the story is, I think, based in the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where you know he, he lived in a slum in a little tent kind of a house. Yeah. And uh, he married the love of his life, and uh, you know he had a child with her and she was pregnant the second time. And where he used to work, it was, you know, he had to cross a mountain every day, go to the other side, and that's where his place of work was. And every afternoon, his wife would get him his lunch by crossing this mountain um, and coming to the other side and giving him lunch and then going back. And once when she was heavily pregnant with her second child, um, you know, she was crossing the mountain, her her foot slipped. She fell down and she oh. died and, and so did the baby. And ever since then, and, and, and this man, uh, Maji, was so much in love with his wife that he could never forgive this mountain for what it did to his wife. And therefore, he knew that, you know, he this was the fate of every other person in the village who fell ill or who was crossing the mountain and uh, you know, met with an accident, because the hospital was very far away on the other oh. side of the mountain, and therefore he pledged that he would single-handedly break the mountain to create a road from one side of the village to the next village. And he took about 15 years to do that, because, I mean, no one, the state administration didn't help him. His friends and family ridiculed him. They deserted him. Um, because they thought that he was completely out of his mind, but it took him 15 years, but he (gasps) flattened that mountain and now what we have is a plain road um, that connects the two villages and therefore the hospital has become nearer to the people, schools have become nearer to the people, offices and places of work have been become nearer to the people, they don't have to travel as much, they don't have to climb that mountain and no more lives are really endangered to that extent. And every time I I watch that movie, wow! And my husband was got uh, awarded for that movie because he his uh, cinematography was spectacular in that movie.
1: Can we put a link to the movie in the show notes? Oh yes, oh yes. Wow. I, I I I
0: shall share with you the link uh, in the movie. It's available on YouTube. Wow, wow! Let's do that. What a story! And you know, every time I watch that movie, I just think that you know. One must have the courage when one sees a barrier of that size, we should not get frightened and run away and just accept that this is fate. We should actually have the courage, irrespective of whether people support us or not. Despite people ridiculing us and not supporting us and deserting us, if we think that this is morally a correct thing to do for us and for, you know, our future generations and our current generations then we should absolutely go ahead and do it even if it takes even if it is only we ourselves as one person who uh, you know takes up that exercise because if the future generations are going to be benefited from it then you know we should do that so while i have faced many barriers i mean all of us as humans face various barriers in our lives from time to time i have not yet found this mountain in my life but i think I mean, I would be really happy if I find such a mountain in my life which I need to beat up and break and simplify lives for, uh, you know, our current and our future generations. That's my mountaineering story.
1: Wow, Smita, what a story. And I have this mountain and I'm going to call you and think together with you, how am I going to break this mountain? Because I've been trying to break it for a very long time. Fabulous. And I'm sure a lot of us do have a mountain like that and i just want to ask you what is the best way to connect with you because i'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to follow you and listen to you and even to connect with you what is the best way to be in touch with you
0: so i'm i'm always available on instagram facebook linkedin twitter uh, whatsapp these are some of my favorite tools and you know I shall share the details with you, Hayut if you uh, you know would like to share that with your listeners
1: It's exactly the next sentence everything will be on our show notes i I can't find the words to say how much I enjoyed this conversation and how interesting and educating and inspiring this conversation has been to me, so I'm definitely sure that. It has been to my listeners and to our listeners as well.
0: Well, Thank you so much, uh, Hayut. I think, first of all, it's a fabulous job on the questions that you have done, because 100% of these questions are totally relevant um, and, you know, completely open-ended, hmm. which means your interviewees can, you know, interpret it and answer it in the most beautiful way, um, because they're all open-ended questions. Uh, And I I can't tell you how much I'm indebted to you that you gave me this opportunity. You reached me out. I didn't know about this particular platform. You you sought me out and, you know, you kind of convinced me to do this. And, uh, you know, I'm happier and blessed that I have done it.
1: (laughs) So thank you so much. And. I know that we will keep in touch, but I encourage every one of our listeners to listen to you and to follow you. And thank you and have a great day and take care, Smita.
0: Thank you so much, Hayuth. Take care to you too. Have a great weekend and, uh, you know, greetings to all the listeners. Thank you for your patient uh, listening here. And uh, (laughs) I'll be very happy to engage with all of you all. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, Smita.
0: Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.